Good morning. I'm Ma- My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. Grateful that God's gathered us together this morning. Uh, you may have noticed that our brother Craig is walking around with a camera. And if you're a guest here, just know that's normal. He's just weird like that. He just likes to take pictures of people doing random things. Just kidding. Uh, we're, he's updating pictures for our website. So uh, if you see me randomly pause with a smile on my face, I'm just... I'm waiting, I'm waiting for him to take a shot. I, I just did that so you would laugh, so that he could get your picture laughing at me. <laughs> now I'm going to say something that's going to make everybody cry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You're weird. <laughs> so we've uh, come to the end of a three-part series here. I look at the core distinctives of our church. We looked at community. And last week we looked at family, and this week we were looking at mission. And if you're a guest here, this is not the normal way we preach. We tend to preach uh, book by book through the Bible. And next week we'll be back in Matthew chapter 19, and we'll finish up the book of Matthew here. And one of the reasons that we preach uh, Lectio Continua, which is through the book, is that it's easier. (laughs) It's hard to come up with topical sermons, so you're welcome for this. Part of the reason is that uh, you want to be faithful to the text that God's given you. You want to be faithful to not pull things out that aren't really there. And so it's harder to do that when you want it to say what you want it to say. But anyway, we're in Genesis chapter 12 today, verses 1 to 4. You can turn in your Bibles there. Uh, This last July uh, was the 50th anniversary of us landing on the moon, unless you're a conspiracy theorist. (sighs) It's the 50th anniversary of a Hollywood movie set. (laughs) Uh, So over the summer, I read a a book called Moonshot, and Moonshot was about uh, all the efforts that it took to put a man on the moon. And two things were particularly striking about uh, this this book, and one was that it revealed the average age of engineers uh, during the NASA project, and the average age of engineers during the NASA Apollo missions was 26 years old. It's 26 years old. And the second thing that stood out in the book was the amount of industry that was created from the call to put a man on the moon. So obviously we know there was advances in avionics and, and, and aerospace engineering and so on, but uh, there was other things that came about through the industry of trying to put on a man on the moon, and namely Tupperware. The invention of Tupperware came from the innovations needed to put a man on the moon. And I say both those things to just draw our attention to something, and that is that when the president called for us to put a man on the moon, he called the entire nation to a higher calling. He called them to something beyond themselves, to cause them to innovate and to cause young men to go into engineering school and so on and so forth. He called the country to mission, to mission. And the word mission is what we're talking about this morning, and the word mission simply comes the word from missio, which means to be sent. That as a, as a people, God has put us on mission, and we can talk all fancy about being a missional church and being on mission and so forth, but all it really means is that God has sent us. God has made us to be a people, and he's sent us. And we see it throughout the scriptures, and we're going to start at the beginning in Genesis chapter 12, we're going to see one man that was sent. That was called by God and then sent. 
And we could develop and we could build a biblical theology to see that God has been sending his people from the beginning and he's sending us now. It's what Jesus, uh, it's how Jesus closes his gospel in the gospel of Matthew. Last words are to go, to go. So let's read in our Bibles in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, go, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abraham went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. We pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word here. We are glad and thankful that you've not left us alone but you've shown us your grand plan of redemption to save the world through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, we ask for your help now as we look at your word. We pray that we would see your plan, your mission to send us, and we pray that we would be encouraged and built up in Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the first point that we're going to look at is the origin of mission. The origin of mission. Where does this all come from? So up to this point in the book of Genesis, uh, it's been pretty bleak. Ever since chapter 3, it's been pretty bleak in the book of Genesis. We've seen the devastating nature of human sinfulness. We've seen God force Adam and Eve to leave the garden. We've seen Cain banished. We've seen God flood the earth. We've seen him scatter the people at the Tower of Babel. But in each of these instances, even in each of these demonstrations of human sinfulness, there has been grace given in kind, grace given in proportion to their sinfulness, which is a truly remarkable statement if you think about it, that every time the people sin against God, he responds equally with some measure of grace. Grace is something that we absolutely don't deserve. It's a word that maybe has become cliche to us as Christians or even in a culture, but grace means you get something that you don't deserve. It's like if you gambled at the casino and lost, and then as you walked out, they just handed you your money back. It's like if you got a speeding ticket and the government sent in the check for you for the amount of the fine. It's completely undeserved and unnecessary. And every time up to this point in the book of Genesis that... Human sinfulness has been on display. God has shown some kind of grace, mercy in response. Undeserved, unmerited, unwarranted favor. Athanasius was one of the patristic fathers in the third century. Described how God responds to the wickedness of man. And Athanasius described it by calling it the divine dilemma. The divine dilemma that God was faced with. 
This is a quote. Because death and corruption were gaining an even firmer hold on them, the human race was in process of destruction. The law of death, which followed from the first transgression, had prevailed upon all of us, and from it there was no escape. The thing that was happening was, in truth, both monstrous and unfitting. So, it was monstrous, let's it was the display of human wickedness, the display of human sinfulness. It was monstrous. But Athanasius goes further to say that it was unfitting. And what he goes on to do is he goes on to describe the glorious, gracious, gracious nature of God. That God would not allow human monstrosities, human wickedness, human sinfulness to continue because he's a God of grace. He gives what we don't deserve. He bestows what we are not worthy of and we don't merit. He goes on like this. He says, repentance recalls men from what is according to their nature. All that it does is to make them cease from sinning. Had it been a case of a trespass only and not of a subsequent corruption, repentance would have been enough. But when once a transgression had begun, had become, men came under the power of the corruption proper to their nature. Repentance was not enough in this case. What, or rather, who was it that was needed for such a grace that men required? Who but the word of God himself, who also in the beginning had made all things out of nothing? His part was it and his alone, both to bring again the corruptible to incorruption, and to maintain for his father the consistency of his own character. Now that's a long quote. But what it's saying is it's saying that it was not just a need to, for, to say sorry. It was not just a need to turn. It was a need for radical conversion. He's saying that our actions had caused a corruptibility had caused us within ourselves to be wicked and evil within ourselves. And there was only one way to change that. And that was for the man, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. That's what Athanasius calls the divine dilemma. The divine dilemma is that God sees our evilness and our wickedness, and, he re- and it's unfitting to him because of his gracious character. So this book, this book of of, of, of Genesis, this book, this Bible that we hold in our hands is not primarily, therefore, a book of rules. It's not primarily even a book of heroes. It's primarily a story. It's the story of God redeeming the world through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a story of the king who ventures to a faraway land to rescue his people, leaves his life of perfect love and peace, and chases them and chases after them, and when he gets to his people, they reject him, and they kill him, but he rises from the dead, and he conquers their own sin that killed him. He conquers the death that is their destiny, and he conquers their greatest enemy, the devil himself. The king comes, and we crucify him, just like every time before the wickedness of man shocks us. It shocks us in the garden, it shocks us at the flood, it shocks us at Babel, Man rebels, 
and puts to death the Son of God. But it is the only way to defeat our own sinfulness, that he would suffer the wrath of God for us, that he would remove our corruptible nature and give us an incorruptible one when we see him face to face. So our need is not just a tick change. We don't need to just change a little. We need radical, absolute conversion. We need to be converted from the inside out. We need a new heart that only God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, can give to us. And so this grand plan of redemption sees the beginnings in this man, Abram, when God calls him. Now, do you realize, if you just look a couple verses back, do you realize who this man was? This man was, was, a, he, he was, he was, a, he was a pagan. He was a worshiper of idols. If you look at Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, I'll read it to you. There's a description there of Abraham. It says, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. And Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, they served other gods and worshipped them. Abram is in a place where he's not seeking after God. He's not in the land that God's about to give to his people Israel. He's a completely foreigner to all this and God comes to him and his sovereign purposes and he calls him and he tells him to go and he says through you I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed it's the beginning of God's plan of redemption ever since the garden in Genesis chapter 3 God made a promise that through the woman through the seed of the woman there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent And this is the beginning of that plan. This one man and his wife will become a great family, who will become a great nation, who will become a light to all nations. This is the beginning of it. So while Abram is living in the pagan land of Ur in Haran, he's worshiping false gods, God says, I'm going to use you to rescue the world. There's going to come one from the woman, who, by the way, is barren. A seed will come from a barren woman who will save the world. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Hebrews will tell us he went not knowing where he was going. The call was to go. The call was simply to go. Go and I will show you. I am sending you. I am initiating. I am originating a plan. I made the promise to the woman in the garden. And now we're going to start kicking that plan into motion here. The call of Abram is one of a sovereign call. It's a call of election. It's a call of God to simply call Abram, not because of anything that Abram could offer to God, but because God was being gracious to the man Abram and his family, and ultimately gracious to us. So that's that's the origin of mission. That's the origin. The origin of mission is from God. God is the one who sends us, and God is sending us because he has finished it. He has done it. He has accomplished it. He's the originator. It's his plan. It's his doing, and he's sending us. So second point. We've already basically said it, but ministry is to go. Ministry is to go. 
couple weeks ago, we preached in 1 Peter chapter 2, which is Peter talking to the church that's in, that's in, in the dispersion. He's talking to Christians. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That language that he uses there, he says that they're a holy nation, they're a royal priesthood. What's a priesthood? Priesthood are people that stand between God and the people. And he said, all of you are that now. If you're a Christian, Peter's telling you, you are a royal priesthood. You stand between God and the watching world. It's it's you. And the reason that he's called you to be that is so that you might proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the sent nature of the church yet again. The constant refrain of the Bible is that God redeems, he saves, he makes us something, and then he sends us. He sends us. He doesn't just save, redeem, change us, remove that corruptible nature so that we can just sit. God does it so that he can send us to proclaim the excellencies to a watching world. Ministry, Christianity, ministry, mission is to go. It's to go. It is to be sent. When we say that one of our core distinctives of a church is mission, we're just highlighting something that the Bible is saying from Genesis to Revelation. We're not making anything up. We're not trying to... To, to add something here to the scriptures, the testimony of the scriptures is that when God saves people, he sends them. Because the reality, the reality of truly meeting God is that it changes you to be a person of mission. The reality of truly meeting God means that you become one who is willing to actually leave the comfortable in order to love and serve others. But what's so striking to me is I was just look. I've read this text so many times. It's one of the key passages in the whole Bible. It ties. It helps tie the whole scriptures together. But something hit me that you probably have all seen before. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be. A blessing. There's blessing in the going. That's my profound point. God is calling us to something radical. He's calling us to be sent. But it just struck me the freshness of the promise that is attended to that command. The promise attended to the command go is I will bless you. When you go... As you go, while you're going, there's blessing and promise in it. Which, the flip side of that is that by not going, by staying, by sitting, we remove ourselves from a certain blessing that God's actually offering to us. That's not prosperity preaching, just so you know. We can still preach commands that have promises attached to them, okay? We can still preach commands that have promises attached to them. The command to go, God attends with the promise, and I will bless you in the going. When you leave comfort, house, home, family, what you're used to, what you're comfortable with, God says, 
I will be with you to the end of the age. I will bless you in the doing of your going, in the sending of your mission. I don't even know if that's a sentence. And the greatest blessing of all, the greatest blessing of all will be his presence in our life. This is the great turning point in the book of Genesis, as we've said, because we start to see the shape of God's plan of redemption for the rest of the Bible. As we said, it starts with Abram and his family. And the book of Genesis is all about the four generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We turn from Genesis chapter 50 to Exodus chapter 1, and we see that this big family has become a nation. It's become a people, a people who will be sent, a people who will be redeemed, and a people who will be sent. They are saved to be a blessing. And that's the radical, upside-down, counterintuitive nature of gospel living. That by living sacrificially, that by living self-giving, loving lives, that you're blessed in the doing. He who wishes to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. This is that upside-down nature of Christianity. This is that radically counterintuitive nature of Christianity. That when we do go, what doesn't, everything in us says, don't go. Everything in us says, stay in the comfortable. Be with my family, my kids. Create the cocoon. You know, insulate ourselves financially. Make sure we have a good nest egg. Take our long, comfortable vacations. Don't go. Why would I ever go? You'll lose your life. He who wishes to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. Leaving the comfortable, giving sacrificially of your money, giving sacrificially of your time, when it doesn't seem to make sense, why would I do that? But this is the radical, self-giving nature of Christianity. Those that live sacrificially, those that give, lives that display the great love of Jesus Christ that has been showered upon them are the ones that receive. The least will be the greatest. The last will be first. We know, of course, I'm going to say it here. I could say it in a lot of places in the sermon, but we're going to say it here. That the reason that Abram is ultimately a blessing to the whole world is because of the one who's one of his descendants who will come thousands of years later. Thousands of years later, Jesus Christ will be born from a woman. The seed that we're waiting for who will defeat our enemies. Paul will tell us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Do you realize what Genesis 3.8 just said? Genesis 3.8 said that the gospel was preached to Abraham when it said, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The good news of Jesus was preached to Abraham when he said, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because it's through the gospel, it's because the finished work of Jesus, it's the way in which the nations are blessed. The nations are blessed because the gospel has now been proclaimed and is being proclaimed to all the nations in the earth. The way that Abram is a blessing is because one of his descendants, the man Jesus Christ, will live a life of perfect obedience to his father and die a sinner's death on the cross, assuaging the wrath of God and bringing people back to God through his life, death, and resurrection. And that message will be preached to the whole earth. To all the nations of the earth will hear that message. And God will save people because of what Jesus has done. And that's good news. That's the way in which the whole earth is blessed. Which means that in our going, if ministry is to go, it means that fundamentally and primarily, ministry is not something that we do. Ministry is primarily a proclamation about what has been done. That means that ministry is not primarily and fundamentally something we do. Ministry and gospel ministry is ultimately and primarily about something we proclaim. Now, of, of, of course, the New Testament and the Bible is just littered with us being called to good works. Trevor preached through the book of Titus over the summer, and we're saved to, to do good works. God saved us beforehand that we might do good works, that we love and serve those around us. But the world is not saved by us doing good works. The world is saved by us proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. Our message is attended to. Our message is affirmed by our good works to show that we truly have been converted and we truly do love people. We love people because we want to tell them about Jesus. And there's been in some circles that that just sounds disingenuous or something like that. That the only reason we're going to serve people is so that they'll listen to the message about Jesus. Folks, you can't ultimately love somebody unless you care about the eternal state of their soul. It's not loving to just feed somebody a sandwich and not care about their eternal soul before a holy God. That's not ultimately loving. These two ideas are not in conflict with one another. We love people because they're made in the image of God. We love people because we have been loved by God ourselves. We love people so that they will see our good works and glorify God on the day that he visits. That they'll hear the message and the proclamation of the gospel. So ministry is to go. Ministry originates from God, point one. Wrapping up point two here. Ministry is to go, and ministry is primarily to proclaim. Ministry is primarily to proclaim. To proclaim the excellencies of him 
who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Ministry is to go and ministry is to proclaim. God is a missionary God. God had one son and he sent him. God had one son and he sent him. He sent him to leave all the comforts. He sent him to leave and to put on our skin and to put on our flesh and pursue us and pursue us and pursue us and pursue us. Many of you know uh, part of my story. I'm not going to tell it all now because it's just, it's just more effective to just drop little bombs now and then and get you to keep coming back. But I spent my 19th birthday in a jail cell. And that Thanksgiving, and that Christmas, and that New Year's. I was not pursuing Jesus at all. I I could care less about Jesus. I could care less about God. I was not pursuing him, but he was pursuing me. And the first night that I was ever in a jail cell, I was 18 years old, and I remember this so vividly that um, I laid down on, this, on, the, on the bunk, and somebody had written in a marker above my head, and it said, you are here because you have not trusted Jesus Christ. And that just was the beginning of a series of events that God would use to save me. And I wept that night because I knew there was something true about that. And then weeks later, maybe months later, I don't remember exactly, these two guys came on a Saturday night. We could have church on Saturday night. These two guys came from a local church, normal, ordinary people. Two guys who were sent by God. And they came and they told me the gospel of Jesus Christ. They told me the good news. They told me that I could be saved. They told me that I could be redeemed. They told me that God loved me through his son and that I had no longer to expect and fear wrath if I put my trust and hope in him. And God saved me. And God saved me. Because he pursues and he pursues and he pursues And every single one of you, if you are a Christian, it's because God has pursued you, he's pursued you, he's pursued you. He's come for you. And those two ordinary guys came on a Saturday night and told some 19-year-old kid about Jesus. And God saved me. Let me just plead with you for a moment if you're not a Christian. Maybe you've been coming here for a few weeks, a few months, a few years. And you put your big toe in the pool and wondered if this could be true. God is pleading with you this morning to repent of your sins and to turn in faith and trust to him. To repent, to acknowledge that you are a sinner. And you don't just need a little a click change. You need to be converted. You're wicked on the inside. The problems of the world aren't out there. The problems of the world reside in your own heart. And when you confess your sin before a holy God and you ask him to forgive you and save you, he's faithful and just to do it. I'd be happy to talk to you more about that after the service. I'll stand in the back. 
And I'd love to talk to you about what it is to be a Christian, how to receive the forgiveness of God that's only found in Jesus Christ. You know the great secret, therefore, to evangelism is? So we're sent, wrapping up the second point here, ministries to go, ministries to plan. You know what the secret of evangelism is? The secret to being on mission? It's not that big of a secret. It's just to not be ashamed of how important Jesus Christ really is to you. It's just to not be ashamed of how important Jesus Christ really is to you. Make friends. Have friends that aren't Christians. Hear that from me as your pastor. Have friends that aren't Christians, which means you need to go places where there's going to be people that aren't Christians, okay? Mingle with people that aren't Christians. Make friends with your neighbors, your coworkers, and be honest about how important Jesus Christ really is to you. You know, one of the most powerful things to do is what I just did a second ago. People love to hear your story. Just tell people your story. Ask them their story. Just tell people how God saved you. People love to hear that kind of stuff. They want to be friends. They want to hear your story. I have very rarely have I told my story of conversion and kind of been blown off by people. They're intrigued by it. There's something that sparks in the human heart to see something like that. That there is a, there's a God that would, that would do that? My favorite example of this one of my favorite examples is that night in Acts 16, 25, when Paul and Silas are in jail. Acts 16, 25, about midnight, they've just been beaten, by the way. They're beaten, they're thrown in jail for talking about Jesus, okay? Paul and Silas, Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he assumed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You realize what's happening here. You realize why he took out his sword, because he was going to take his own life, because it, he was responsible for these prisoners. And if they escaped, then it was on his head. He was going to be executed anyway. So Paul and Silas, they're thrown in jail. They're just sitting there singing. They're, just, they're, they're, they're praying and singing, verse 25. Earthquake happens, doors open, and no one leaves. What kind of testimony must these two guys, Paul and Silas, been having on the rest of the prisoners? They would rather stay and figure out what's going on than just kind of bolt out the door. Honestly, I probably would have bolted out the door, you know? I'm like, I'm out. This is my chance. Earthquake, see ya. But there was something so powerful in these two men, Paul and Silas, that captivated the prisoners to stay. The doors open and no one leaves. 
And it provokes the question of the jailer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off and I was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. They were escaped and and, and, and redeemed from the prison and bondage to sin and death itself. So that's what the origin of mystery, (laughs) the origin of ministry and mission, the proclamation, nature of going. And third, let's just talk about for a few minutes, how do we get it? How do we get the motivation to do this? We talked about that we must save our lives, we must lose our lives to save them. We talked about being sacrificial and self-giving and so on. So how do we get the power to do that? Because I don't want to just have you leave today and think, I guess I need to muster it up. I guess I need to muster that up. Something else to do. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Our mission as a church is to celebrate and display the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. To celebrate it. We've been talking about the display part, right? That's mission. But to celebrate the beauty and the glory of Jesus. I'm going to read a little bit here from 2 Corinthians. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sakes. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now why do I read that? When we talk about the glory of God, what are we talking about? It's a phrase, again, that can be so easily tossed around. But the glory of God is the worth, the weightiness of God on display. His infinite beauty, power, 
on display. We don't add to God's glory. God is infinitely beautiful and powerful and worthy apart from anything that we do. We don't add to it. So to glorify God is not to add to his glory. Rather, it means for us to embrace it, to enjoy it, to rest in it, to savor it. The goal of our lives is to live in such a way that it reveals God's glory. Now let me just give you a few examples of what this looks like. Okay? Because anyone in the Bible who has seen the glory of God is immediately sent. So the only way that I can motivate you, and God motivates us from his word, is to look at his glory. You remember the story of Isaiah, of course, right? Isaiah comes into that throne room and says, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And immediately God says, I need to send a servant to a group of people who are never going to listen to you. They're never going to change, but I need someone to still go and tell them about me. And Isaiah says, I'm your man because he's seen the glory of the Lord. Second place I want to show you. Luke chapter 5. The, the, the fishermen are having a tough time fishing. Okay? They're having a difficult time fishing. So... Jesus tells them, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. (laughs) They're like, yeah, that's called fishing. We've been doing that all day. And Simon answers, Master, we've toiled uh, all night and took nothing. But as your word, I'll let down the nets. It's like, I'll cast again, I suppose. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled both their boats so that they both began to sink. The boats are sinking. There's so much fish. That's what it's like when I go fishing. Take the picture now. Here it is, though, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to send you. You've seen my glory. You've seen my power. You've seen my worthiness. You fall down. You proclaim your own sinfulness. And he says, and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. When we see the glory of God and we learn to actually celebrate it. We learn to celebrate it. It becomes a display. I'll give you one quote from Jonathan Edwards. He's basically going to say that glory is the worth of God on display. He says, all that is ever spoken in the scripture as an ultimate end of God's work is included in that phrase, the glory of God. The refulgence shines upon and into the creature and is reflected back to the luminary. The beams of glory come from God and are something of God and are refunded back again to the original. 
so that the whole is of God and in God and to God, and God is the beginning and the middle and the end of this affair. When we see the glory of God and we celebrate it, it actually delights our hearts. It delights our souls. It says that it radiates back to God. So we embrace his glory. We enjoy it. We revel in it. That's what's being said here, I think, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. That's why we read that. It radiates back hearts and lives that have been captured by the majesty of God. So that when we say celebrate and display the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, it's almost like we could say celebrating is displaying. And displaying is celebrating. And the place where we behold the glory of God the most is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll drive us to a conclusion with that. The light, of the, glory, the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God. Look down at verse 6. It says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The place where you see the glory of God most supremely on display is in the face, in the man, in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who did not account equality with God to be grasped but emptied himself. When you see him, when you see the suffering servant, we read from Isaiah 42 this morning, the suffering servant, the one who bled and died for sinners, the one who pursued, that is the pinnacle of his glory. We could talk about his glory and his creative power. We could talk about his glory in a lot of ways. But the pinnacle of the glory of God, the apex of it, where he's seen to be infinitely worthy and matchless above all else is on the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross of Jesus Christ, suffering and dying for sinners like you and me who don't deserve it. That 19-year-old kid in a jail cell, the love of God radically on display in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want to see his glory, if you want to see his worth, if you want to have that power for mission, if you want more motivation to be sent, then just gaze upon him Consider him again and again. Consider him afresh. Long to look at him. See the man Jesus Christ. The suffering servant. The man of sorrows. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Alleluia, what a Savior. Look at him. And when you look at him and you celebrate him, you'll start to display him. And it'll motivate you to go, to be a proclaiming community, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Hallelujah, what a savior. Let us pray.